Brother Eddie's asked that we mark hymn number eight, and certainly as we're happy to do that and use that a bit later in the service that we have together tonight, I'd like to invite you to think about this evening a lesson I've entitled Entering a Covenant. And you may have noticed as Brother Colonel read for us just a moment ago from the 15th chapter of Second Chronicles, there was mention made of a very interesting covenant there. But as you and I proceed to through our lesson this evening, we'll make application to a broader range of covenants. And I suspect that we certainly will do that in a way that will be very touching, very memorable, and also very interesting to each of us. As you and I know, throughout the course of our lessons this year at the Pippin Congregation, we continue to, to move our way through the book of God, having now virtually completed Second Chronicles. That brings us to this point, 802 chapters as of the end of the day yesterday in terms of our reading. As you can see, that's over 67%, a little over two-thirds of the fullness of the Word of God. As we have found a number of interesting matters in Second Chronicles, I think we noted last Sunday evening that there is mention made of some issues that also appeared in 2 Kings, but the perspective is rather different, isn't it, in 2 Chronicles? One of the things certainly very intriguing about our passage tonight will be the way it especially is set before us in relation to a covenant. You'll notice on that particular slide, the very thought of a covenant seems to be a central one really in the entirety of the book of God. There are, in fact, approximately 300 references, both Old and New Testament, to the existence of, the matter of, and the significance of a covenant. The very first mention we find anywhere about that word per se is that marvelous matter in relation to Noah and the covenant that God vouchsafed to him to protect and keep those aboard that ark. Isn't it intriguing, though, the very last reference explicitly to that word is found in the closing chapter of the Hebrews letter, where there it's the blood of the everlasting covenant, the very nature of the New Testament. That's an amazing thing, isn't it? No wonder as we see that kind of a span from the earliest stages of time until really the, a pinnacle appreciating the matter of Christ. Tonight, I would invite all of us to think a bit carefully about a covenant, and the fact that entering it is not a trivial matter. Namely, there are obligations and responsibilities and there are requirements on the part of those that enter into a covenant relationship. As you and I think again about Asa and the way that the people of his day entered a covenant, we'll use that as a springboard to lead us into a deeper appreciation of the covenant even tonight. The text is one that we should consider a bit more thoroughly. So I would invite you to revisit 2 Chronicles 15 as we make certain that we're appreciative of those events as they unfolded and the way the covenant was discussed and mentioned. It all started, as you can tell. It was really a rather solemn scene in 2 Chronicles 15, wasn't it? So much so that as the opening verses of that chapter set before us, God especially gave the prophet Oded a, a commission. He was to come before Asa, the Judean king, as well as before the people of Judah. And God had a message. I'd like you to notice verse number 2. This is what God had Oded to say. And he went out to meet Asa and said unto him, Hear ye me, Asa, and all Judah and Benjamin. The Lord is with you while ye be with him, 
And if you seek him, he will be found of you. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. There had been problems and troubles for quite some time in ancient Judah. You might recall they suffered afflictions. They suffered a number of very terrifying matters. And now God sends the prophet Oded to bring this message before the king. As long as you will in fact seek the Lord and pursue His way, you will find Him. But he went on to say, if you forsake Him, He will forsake you. Those are almost chilling words as that verse closes, aren't they? It was a strong and powerful reminder. Asa was one of the first of those kings, and quite frankly, he needed to be reminded up front that he needed to lead the people in a way that was representative of the truth of God and never, ever veer from it. And as long as he would do that, God would bless the nation. He would honor them by providing for them in all the ways that were needful. And certainly all would be well with them. But on the other hand, just like had happened in years gone by, if they forsook the Lord, walked not in His counsels, in fact, raced aside from His demands, that God would not be with them and He would forsake them. All of that leads us to observe the following. In verses 3 and following, Mention is expressly made about some matters with which they were very familiar. The previous kings, and you and I remember them well, we studied about Rehoboam last Sunday evening. We also gave attention in between to briefly mention Abijah. They all made rather poor decisions, didn't they? And so here, God warns Asa through the prophet Oded, if you, unlike your predecessors, will preserve the matter of truth and pursue it in me, then in fact all shall be well. That thought immediately develops as follows. You and I might wonder, how did Asa respond to this charge that God through Oded gave? Please notice verse number 8. And when Asa heard these words and the prophecy of Oded the prophet, he took courage and put away the abominable idols out of the land of Judah and Benjamin and out of the cities which he had taken from Mount Ephraim, and renewed the altar of the Lord, and that was before the porch of the Lord. Asa had a heart that could still be reached, didn't he? He was mindful of those words that Oded had stated, and not only that, it says he responded with courage. It wasn't a tremendously easy thing, was it? Idolatrous matters were entrenched in Israel. It had been set there by some of those predecessors from ancient eras. You and I remember people like Jezebel, people like Ahab, and others who through the course of time caused great problems and havoc for God's people. In this instance, it says he took courage, verse number 8, and put away the abominable idols. And notice it says, out of all the land of Judah and Benjamin... Asa had a desire to make a clean sweep to remove all of these offending matters. It went on to say, He renewed the altar of the Lord that was before the porch of the Lord. We began to appreciate there had been a crumbling. They hadn't taken care of some of those features and matters that were related to the greatness of that which was the temple now. Asa takes it into his heart and mind to renew a part of it, to in fact invest in it. You'll notice in light of all of that, we've really only begun. We have found in the leadership here one who is responsive. 
that immediately leads us to this. We find in verse number 9, He gathered all Judah and Benjamin. Notice it wasn't then just a matter in Asa's heart. He was desirous of leading the people at large to a keener appreciation and a closer walk with the God of heaven. The verse says, He gathered all Judah and Benjamin and the strangers with them out of Ephraim and Manasseh and out of Simeon. For they fell to him out of Israel in abundance when they saw that the Lord his God was with him. As Asa then made these statements, gathering the people together, he's now about to make an official statement. Some of those ideas you can well tell read like this. Verse 10 says, So they gathered themselves together at Jerusalem in the third month in the fifteenth year of the reign of Asa. And they offered unto the Lord the same time of the spoil which they had brought, seven hundred oxen and seven thousand sheep. And they entered into a covenant to seek the Lord, God of their fathers with all their heart and with all their soul, that whosoever would not seek the Lord God of Israel should be put to death, whether small or great, whether man or woman. Pausing at that point, we notice, as the congregation gathered, they entered into a covenant. They did so in an official capacity. There was the offering. There were furthermore were statements of celebration. There were statements of proclamation. Verse 14 says, They swear unto the Lord with a loud voice, and with shouting, and with trumpets, and with cornets. And all Judah rejoiced at the oath, for they had sworn with all their heart, and sought him with their whole desire, and he was found of them. And the Lord gave them rest round about. We notice a number of statements. First, there was a covenant. Statement was made of an oath that they took. There was confirmation with the associated celebration and joy. I would invite you to think with me about the entering of a covenant today. The Bible makes so many mentions of it and always seemingly lifts it to an exceedingly high position of significance. You and I today seemingly do not find often the attachment to the importance of a covenant. In fact, as you turn to the very next slide, you might appreciate the significance stated as you and I begin to ponder it like this. There is a central covenant that occupies such a fundamental and foundational position. It is the covenant of marriage. It's a covenant that by and large our society and the world at large has failed to appreciate the whole nature of it as a covenant. Many are under the impression you can enter and leave a marriage at will. There's not a solemnity attached to it. It's not as if there's a bedrock foundation of what would be recognized as a covenant. After all, the word covenant has behind it the notion, doesn't it, of that which is a compact. It is a testimony it's not just a whimsical matter on the part of one or even two people. It's far more significant than that. We begin to appreciate a bit about that in this text before us. And I would invite us to use the proclamation of a covenant here to remind us about the covenant of marriage today. That covenant perhaps beginning in the following thoughts. There are many questions that often are asked about marriage in our day. Now, some of them are you and I are well aware of because they occupy the news on a rather frequent basis. 
But there are other kinds of questions that maybe you've had or have others have asked them of you. For instance, consider this situation. Someone perhaps says, but marriage is simply between a man and a woman. Why can't they just confirm in their own mind the nature of it and begin to live together with all the blessings of marriage and never make a public ordeal out of it, never make any kind of statement in terms of obtaining a marriage license? It's between them and them alone. I wonder how the Bible would respond to that. Is there anything more significant than just a couple of people making an agreement? Does it extend any deeper than that? May we say in Malachi chapter 2, verse 14, that marriage is called a covenant. There is the concept of a covenant in its relationship to marriage. In that regard, we then should give thought to the ways in which the Word of God discusses a covenant because in those ways it would then bring before us the principles that we can use to consider marriage. You might also consider other questions. Well, what about the nature of that particular time or moment in which a marriage is sealed or confirmed? Is that something open to consideration? Is it a matter for open discussion? We might say that in regard to our thoughts of a covenant, if the Word of God then speaks of marriage as a covenant, we would do well to consider it ourselves tonight, and I would hope we could do that in the time that we have remaining this evening. I believe as we continue that particular discussion, we shall discover that a covenant involves a number of distinct and special items. And these items you and I can appreciate not only in the text of 2 Chronicles 15, but also as we remind ourselves of maybe the marriage ceremonies that we were involved in or the times we have been present at one and witnessed what took place. For instance, why don't we start with this one. It is true that a covenant at the very outset carefully makes recognition of the parties involved in that covenant. It's almost as if there's a matter of identification. Who is it that's entering this covenant? So that that person can be well apprised of what obligations he then, he or she are then agreeing to and what are the demanded responsibilities that they are confirming that they shall now do. That makes entire sense, doesn't it? You'll notice here in verse number 8 and 9, we find the statement as to who is involved on this occasion. We find that as God made this presentation, we find so carefully that Asa, all Judah, and Benjamin, and even strangers who had allied themselves with the people of Israel, they too were entering into this covenant. I've called this basically a consideration of the preamble. You and I remember that many of the official documents in our history of our country, in fact, are such that they have a preamble that sets the terms what's the major ideas that are about to be expressed, and the reasoning for it. I would invite you to think about a typical marriage ceremony for just a moment. There is a time in that ceremony, and I have tried to state it at the bottom, when the preacher, the, the person who is the officiant, that individual makes statements such as, as he addresses the, the, the bride or the groom, do you take this man or woman to be your lawful wedded husband or wife? And so there's a clear identification. It's you I'm talking to. Do you take this man to be your lawful wedded husband? Do you take this woman to be your lawfully wedded wife? 
that is a statement in which identification takes place. The others present, although they may witness, they are not the ones who are entering into that covenant on that occasion. Amazingly, we find, of course, the power and majesty of that thought because that's just the beginning. What else did these do in the days of 2 Chronicles 15? Let's look even further. In addition to that preamble, I've asked you to think about the description for just a moment. Here we find that before the matter of this great covenant was presented, there was a rehearsal. The problems and the issues that they had had to face in days gone by, the circumstances surrounding the current promise of God, and the fact that if you do not forsake Him, He won't forsake you, all of that formed a basis, a groundwork on which the springboard for the covenant was now to take place. Consider marriage just a moment. The marriage ceremonies of today, it's always the case, isn't it? At least every time I've been invited to perform one, I make certain to include a somewhat lengthy or at least a powerful reminder that marriage officiated with God. He originated it. It is His plan fully and entirely. That being said, He sets forth fully the rules that govern it. Every aspect of it is answered in one way or another by that which is His will. The background, the history then for the solemnity of that moment can be appreciated as the two are agreeing to that which God has set forth. It's an honorable arrangement, it's a lovely arrangement, and it's a very compelling one at that. You might notice in the text before us, verse number 9, again, we find the people were reminded about the history of what had brought them to this moment. Quite often, again, an officiant in the marriages of today will use that as an opportune time in the ceremony to reflect a bit on the husband and his family, the wife and her family, and how that they are now being forged into a family of their own with all the blessings and the privileges that go with it. We can appreciate that is a part often of that which is a covenant. In addition to that description, why don't we then appreciate even this? For beyond that preamble and even beyond that description, we find the matter that might be called the stipulations. We know that as the Bible makes discussion of a covenant, there are obligations that each party is agreeing to. I've used the word stipulations in regard to that. Each are agreeing to certain things that he or she will do. It is a part of the recognition of a compact or an agreement, isn't it? You might remember on some other occasions when covenants were made between God and the people of Israel. As for instance, in the scene of Exodus, 20, Exodus chapter 24. On that occasion, God, remember with the people gathered at Mount Sinai, Moses came up, God gave in essence the words that were to be accepted by the people of Israel. When Moses read the words to them, they said, All that the Lord hath said we will do. All the consequences, all the stipulations, all the requirements, the people agreed to them. As you and I think about the stipulations, that might well involve a list of responsibilities, a list of duties, a list of his special obligations and considerations. Amazingly enough, you'll notice sometimes promises are included in that aspect of a covenant. In other words, each one is agreeing to certain things that they will do in response to certain activities on the part of the other one. Promises. 
It is in that regard I would ask you to notice again, I've quoted verbatim again, some of the words typically heard in, in, a, in, a, in a usually used marriage ceremony. To have and to hold from this day forward. For better, for worse. For richer, for poorer. In sickness and in health. To love and to cherish. Isn't it true that usually those are included in one way or another, often verbatim, at one aspect and place in the, in the typical marriage ceremony? Do you notice the stipulations in it with me? Each is making promise, richer or poorer. The physical and financial circumstances, though challenging and hard they may be, that is not reason for dissolution of the marriage. You've made a covenant in sickness and in health. Each is making a powerful and mighty promise on that occasion. You'll also notice as it continues onward, to love and to cherish. Now often that stipulation goes on to keep oneself from all others and only to your beloved one, again, till death do us part. The stipulations and responsibilities are extensive, aren't they? But how sweet it is to hear the power of the concept of covenant that's etched in the background to those statements. Isn't it true in light of all of that? We now give consideration to some additional matters as well. I have listed one part as a depository. That seems to be a very interesting consideration. I've defined it like this. The filing of a written copy in such a way to have the idea of permanency attached with it. Notice again, this covenant is not something one can enter and leave in a whimsical fashion. It rests far more solidly than that. You'll notice as you and I think then about the filing of this covenant. Think about some of those covenants of the Old Testament again. There were times God wrote them on rocks as was the case again in Exodus chapter 20. There were times again later in Deuteronomy chapters 32 and 33 when they will be etched in stone. A permanent copy of these obligations and the terms of each one were set forth. We notice in the text before us in 2 Chronicles 15, the people entered into this covenant. The text affirms that they did so with joy, with celebration. Consider the marriage covenant again. You and I know today that there is a marriage license that's obtained, an official signature is on it, and it is registered at the courthouse. A permanent copy is held. And not only that, the couple themselves, of course, is given a permanent copy of that. They can display and keep on their wall or perhaps in some other very special place. Not only that, often in the Bible at least, we find reminders of the essence of a covenant. Remember the scene in which, again in Deuteronomy 33, when the people assembled, the terms of that covenant were reread again. So they would always have freshly in mind that to which they had agreed. Today, when it comes to marriage, don't you and I do something similar to that? We have annual anniversaries. Every year we celebrate our marriage a reminder of that powerful covenant we entered and the joy we still experience by virtue of it. And of course, as we celebrate that again on an annual basis, we appreciate again that marriage was called a covenant. And in the nature of that description, this depository is there set forth as well as our reminder of those terms to which we agreed. 
this concept of a depository perhaps leads us to some additional features of the marriage as well. But as we revisit 2 Chronicles 15, why don't we think of this next item, the concept of a witness. You'll notice that one by one, these are addressing for us some of those questions that we raised earlier. Can two people just agree to be married apart from any public obligation or any of these other matters? The answer is no. We begin to see then the importance of a ceremony, a matter of officiality. Well, let's consider for a moment the matter of the witnesses. We know a witness is one who can assert and proclaim that in fact these two did enter that covenant. In the days of 2 Chronicles 15, witnesses could then give their statement that indeed these individuals have entered a covenant. Both agreed to the terms, both agreed to the responsibilities and stipulations, both agreed that they would accept the terms in every form they were presented. As you and I travel down the stream of time and give thought into a marriage today, we all know that there are witnesses there. Typically at the outset of the ceremony, the preacher, the person officiating will make some official statement welcoming those that are present, not only the wedding party, but all of the guests who had come because they were able to serve as a witness to the reality of that marriage. Now certainly you and I at this point could say there are two special ones. That person who serves as the maid of honor and that individual who serves as the best man they have been especially invited by the wedding party themselves to serve as the highest of the witnesses. But yea, everyone present is able to serve that they each entered into a marriage that day and they did so and they could confirm as witnesses that such took place. When you and I then observe that again most of the time there is a simple statement and usually they're in too long a pause after it, but some statement to the effect that if any person has any reason whereby these two cannot enter lawfully into marriage, let him speak now or forever hold his peace. Notice someone, if he or she has knowledge, needs to divulge that as witnessing information on that occasion. No wonder we can begin to appreciate that the marriage is not just a trivial agreement between a couple of people. It's true that they, of course, are entering into something rather solemn, but there are other witnesses to confirm the eventuality of the moment. This concept of witness, isn't it a rather interesting one that you and I find often appearing in the wonderful Word of God? Individuals who could serve to confirm matters of a covenant or otherwise. As you proceed past the concept of the witness, Look at the next element that always seemed to be present in the description of a covenant. We highlighted it at least in passing a moment ago, but also it's probably fair to include it as a separate section. The so-called blessings and curses that would go with it. Again, these two are the number who are entering the covenant. They are making a life-altering decision. Things can never be the same after the time of that marriage. It truly is a matter to impact themselves for all eternity for them. The solemnity of that concept of marriage, notice how that on this occasion, there were statements in verses 14 and 15 about the nature of the consequences, the considerations of the blessings and otherwise. 
Again, you and I notice in the concourse of a marriage ceremony, there's often an extensive discussion of the blessings, the honorable things touching the concept of marriage, and how that indeed each will be honored and blessed by their relationship to one another. Usually, of course, there's also a statement along that line about the fact that it's God that joins together. Matthew 19, verse 6, And let not man put us under. And as those statements are made, it is a rehearsal of how God will look with favor upon those who will honor and abide by His will. But by the same token, although it's not often included, one perhaps can be aware that the Bible does not with favor look upon those who cast aside the law of God, the blessings and the cursings that touch the very subject of a covenant, the covenant you and I call marriage. Perhaps it is at that point you can appreciate the next item with me. Till death do us part. Think about the strength of a statement like that one. I know that in a marriage ceremony, the husband, or the, I should say the groom, I guess, is nervous. The bride's nervous. And maybe they don't give the fullest appreciation, but likely in those days of counseling beforehand, they often reflected upon whatsoever God hath joined together. Let not man put us under. The honor and the permanency that attaches to the concepts of marriage and how that, that repository and the deposition of that moment officially writing it, if you please, in the very halls of heaven because notice God joins them together. It isn't the preacher. He's privileged to be the officiant. He can make the pronouncement in terms of the deed being completed, but it's God that in fact carried out that activity. Amazing, isn't it, that you'll notice sometimes there are marriage ceremonies that it will include this statement at one point. As the final pronouncement is made, so help you God. Calling upon the blessing and the authority of the God of heaven to finally and ultimately bring closure to that event. Marriage, as we are continuing to see, is really a monumental and significant thing, isn't it? Not light by any stretch of the imagination. As you come to the next one with me, we did notice there in Second Chronicles 15, mention was made of an oath that they took on that occasion in which with Asa and audience, the people made this oath, this statement of vow. We all are well aware that that is a very vital part of the marriage ceremony, isn't it? Call it an oath, a type of vow, if you please. And you and I notice so very carefully that there are many tokens in the actual marriage ceremony that take us directly back to the reality of a vow. The ring. Quite often as the preacher again will take that ring and make a statement of the circular character of it, the unending nature of what that circular matter presents, often with a statement of, so too may your love never find an end. May in fact there be no point of cessation in which it will come to its point of termination. You'll also notice that, again, a very carefully worded pair of vows typically will take place in the ceremony in which each one is required to recite verbatim after what the officiant or preacher has to say. Those statements directly include usually the word vow in one way or another. That promise, that oath, that vow that each one makes with regard to promise with respect to the other 
is a direct part of the covenant that they are making that day. You can also see as you give thought to that that then there's a pronouncement, a moment of officiality, if you please. You notice here, there was a time when the covenant was sealed, a time when, in fact, the terms had been agreed to and the ceremony closed. As you appreciate the way that's written, and again in verses 11 and following of Second Chronicles 15, I would invite you to think about the official pronouncement. Verse 15 is what seems to occupy that place in this chapter. There will come a time in that marriage ceremony when typically the preacher will ask them to turn around and face the audience. And with a smile on his face, he can say, I now provide to you, present before you, Mr. and Mrs., and then provide their name. The ceremony is drawn to an official conclusion in the sense that the deed of pronouncement was now completed. They have each agreed to the terms of the vow. They each have a provided by the marriage certificate having been obtained that they agree to it and wish for it to be officially recorded. The preacher then will submit the paperwork and indeed it will now be officially recorded in the courthouse and the official records of that place. As you come to the close of that slide, I pronounce you husband and wife. Typically, they grin from ear to ear by that point. They proceed and get ready to walk down the aisle, and it's such a happy moment and a happy occasion. You'll notice, though, we can go a little bit further for some of the oaths and some of the covenants we find in the Bible. We can even add some more things to it, and that seems quite fitting in light of many modern marriage ceremonies. Look with me at this. It wasn't at all unusual for a covenant to be sealed in the final matters with a, a celebratory meal when the parties who were now at peace with one another would sit down and enjoy a meal with each other. That did happen expressly in Genesis 31 verses 54 and following. There you may remember that on that occasion it involved Laban and Jacob. Remember they were not at peace at first because Jacob left. But after, in fact, they had caught up and a covenant of peace was made, we noticed they did share in a time of peace and tranquility. In our modern era, quite often, a meal is shared by the bride and the groom and their families and a host of other guests. This fellowship meal, again, you and I might see in it as a part of confirmation, a time of celebration for the covenant that has now been officially affirmed. It really is a moment of celebration, isn't it? As food is enjoyed, kind fellowship shared, the appreciation of laughter and frivolity, it really can be a happy occasion that evening or that other time of day whenever it happens to take place. That concept of a fellowship meal maybe leads us to some of these final comments. I would invite you to think that merely a personal vow or a personal agreement does not satisfy all of these descriptive matters of a covenant. That's why marriage ceremony does have a strong element of consideration. And as you and I think about it today, then that description we made initially, just a man and woman choosing to live together, that's not the covenant of marriage. That's just open fornication. Isn't it amazing in light of statements of all of this that goes into a covenant that you and I might notice one final set of statements about this issue of marriage. 
the great blessing attached and afforded to it in the Word of God. I have chosen to list for you these. Wasn't it true that Jesus, of course, attended the marriage feast in John chapter 2, and on that occasion, turning that water into wine, we will remember the happy state of affairs that was descriptive of that time. In addition to that, what about that text in Hebrews 13, 4? Marriage is honorable in all. That statement is such a sweet one. And again, it seems to me that should be included in every marriage ceremony. Marriage is honorable in all. But you will notice even in that same verse, there is consequence to those that aren't faithful to it. Whoremongers and adulterers, God will judge. One final passage might well be that incredible comparison in Ephesians chapter 5. Jesus and His church likened unto the relation between a husband and a wife. That still lifts marriage to such a very high plateau, doesn't it? To all of us as husbands, didn't He say, Husbands, love your wives as Christ also loved the church and gave Himself for it, Ephesians 5.25. And as that chapter closes to wives, He said, Reverence your husband, Ephesians 5.33. Those kind of statements, again, are not just a trivial agreement between a couple of people. They highlight for us one last time the covenant character of marriage. Maybe one final thought. How sad it is to appreciate the brokenness of a covenant. You and I do know that Israel wasn't faithful to the covenant she made with God. Again, she said, All that the Lord hath said will we do, Exodus 24, 8. But yet, we know more than once, she did not do what she promised. Despite God's faithfulness to her, she wasn't faithful to Him. No wonder then, sometimes there's such a sad statement in the Old Testament in which we can almost see proverbial tears streaming down the face of God. He was faithful, but his bride wasn't. Today, it still is a crushing thing to consider the load of marriages that, that are not as God would have them to be. The parties aren't faithful to the agreement they made. Keeping yourself from all others to only to him or her till death do you part. And so many seemingly under many circumstances fail to keep those vows. The tragedy of all of that takes us then often to what the Bible has to say about the nature of a covenant. Perhaps as you and I close the lesson tonight, it still is true, isn't it, that you and I serve beneath the New Testament. The word testament is just another word for a covenant. There was an Old Testament, namely the Old Covenant, and you, there is a New Testament, a New Covenant. And you probably can pause for a moment and begin to ask, what about the significance of all of these matters in relation to the new covenant? Is there a moment of proclamation? Are there blessings and curses that go with it? Is there a preamble in light of you and me as we are Christians? If time would permit, we could develop many of those thoughts, but we shall not have that occasion of allotted time tonight. But I would ask you to notice that in Hebrews 13, 20, it does say one last time about the blood of the everlasting covenant. Jesus in Matthew 26, 28, didn't He also on that occasion say, as He spoke about the fruit of the vine, This cup is the New Testament in my blood which is shed for many for the remission of sins. He used the word testament. This is the new covenant in my blood. I know we've spoken most often tonight about the covenant of marriage.
but we might ask about our commitment as Christians. For on the day that we were baptized, do you believe with all of your heart that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God? The preacher will ask a person who has come forward right before baptism about that confession, and the person will say, yes, or the person will say, I do. Sounds a lot like the words a husband and wife says in the marriage ceremony, I do. You'll notice that you and I entered into a principled form of a covenant that day in which we professed ultimate and final allegiance to the God of heaven, characteristically expressed through the nature of His Son. Are you and I faithful to that covenant? Do we live under the banner of its blessings day by day, or are we, in fact, sadly considering its curses? For we know that during the course of that New Testament, we find so many things that paint a picture so blessed on one occasion for the faithful, but so condemning on the other for the unfaithful. The entrance of a covenant is what we've studied tonight, and I trust we've each been reminded of the solemnity of a covenant. If you're not a faithful Christian tonight, why not let that be the case? Only Christ can add you to the church, Acts 2 verse 47. And we'd be delighted to assist as you come forward. We'd be happy to make the provisions that we can. If you have become a Christian, though, but are not faithful as of tonight, realize that you can come back to faithfulness to the terms of the covenant. Thanks be unto God, there is a second law of pardon. When mistakes are made publicly, when things are not as they should be, you can come back and He will wipe away all the mistakes. And you can again be faithfully in adherence to the terms of the covenant. Tonight, if we could be of assistance to anyone in that regard, we'd be delighted to do it. If we could help, let us know the way we can and do so while together we stand and while we sing.